Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and investors who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Bob Hughes, VP of Biochemistry at BioAge. Joining us today is Professor Stephen Austin. He's a distinguished researcher in geroscience. He's the Protective Life Endowed Chair in Healthy Aging at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He's also the director of the Nathan Schock Center at UAB and the senior scientific director of the American Federation for Aging Research. Professor Osted, thank you for joining us. Delighted to be here, Bob. We like to sometimes start from the beginning. So I'll just throw out a pretty basic question. How did you become interested in the biology of aging? So I had a very unusual way of becoming interested in in the biology of aging. It's something that really never occurred to me. I did my PhD in animal behavior, and I was doing a postdoc on bird behavior. And I discovered quite by accident, because of a side project that I was working on, that opossums, a very similar opossum we find in the States, but this was a related species in South America, that the opossums aged as fast as mice do. And I discovered this because I had individual animals radio collared and I was recapturing them once a month. And I could see an individual go from the pristine peak of health to looking old, decrepit, muscles were gone, eyes with cataracts within the course of a few months. That observation was so striking to me and so unexpected that it really started me thinking about aging in a completely different way. I would have assumed that opossums aged about the way house cats do, since they're about the same size. It had never occurred to me that animals that were about the same size wouldn't age at about the same rate. So it was a, it was an observation that stuck with me. And I just spent month after month thinking about it. And gradually, my interest turned away from behavior and turned towards aging and stuck with it ever since. You were initially interested in these animals for behavioral reasons, and then serendipitously observed this, what we might call an accelerated aging phenotype, and that caught your attention. Well, it was even stranger than that because I wasn't interested in opossums for behavior. I was doing behavior on a group of birds there. What I was interested in the opossums is they were a perfect animal for testing an evolutionary theory about when females should have a preponderance of male offspring versus female offspring. The nice thing about opossums is that because the offspring are born when they're about the size of an ant and they go into the pouch, then if you catch a female, you can open the pouch and you can just count the number of males and the number of females. So that's the project I was really interested in. So it wasn't even the behavior that I was interested in. It was something entirely different. The interesting thing about that is that that project was about the sex ratio of the pups, was eventually published in Nature. And by the time it came out, I totally lost interest in in that project and I was off studying aging. You know, this is reminiscent of an interview that we did with uh, Rochelle Buffenstein on the Naked Mole Rat. 
She was a graduate student in South Africa and was looking at eusocial behavior in the naked mole rat and collected a number of animals, brought them into the lab. And she was struck by the fact that they were living so long, 15 years, 20 years. And that got her thinking about why are these rodents living so long? It's a similar question about how one gets into aging research, not necessarily intending to. Since you bring up the opossums and the sex ratio question is a good one, I noticed in your recent publications that you're still interested in sex as a determinant of longevity. But is there something about the marsupials that is unusual about their longevity? Well, for one thing, they're shorter lived than than eutherian mammals of the same size. And in fact, this is one of the first things that struck me. By the way, I was interested in the naked mole rat from before I ever got in aging because of their eusociality. Because we knew in insects that eusocial animals, the queens live way, way longer than the workers, I'd actually inquired probably when Shelley was working on her PhD with her PhD advisor, Jennifer Jarvis, I'd written to her and I'd said, by any chance do these queen mole rats live a lot longer than the workers? And at that point, she thought they did. And she said, oh yeah, they live up to 17 years. So I thought that was great. And then I kind of forgot about them until years later when I ran into Shelley and she'd really taken that and run with it. I was delighted to see that. But getting back to the marsupials, they struck my interest almost immediately because of a prevailing idea in the field at the time, which was called the rate of living theory. And that's the idea that the rate of aging is really determined by your metabolic rate. There was considerable amount of support for it in a certain sense. For instance, if you take invertebrates like flies or worms and you raise them at lower temperatures, they live longer. It also slows their metabolic rate. And it was kind of a satisfying idea, the idea that the fundamental processes of life are inherently destructive. And if you slow them down, you'll slow down the rate of destruction. So when I first got into aging, I was thinking about that idea, which didn't make a tremendous amount of evolutionary sense to me. That made a lot of mechanistic sense. But then I started thinking about, well, let's see, the marsupials have a metabolic rate, a basal resting metabolic rate, that's about 70% of that of non-pouched mammals. According to the rate of living theory, they should be a bit longer live. But in fact, there was a lot of information on them, and it was quite clear they were shorter lived. So it got me to thinking that there's a more complicated story to be teased out about aging. And that's really what I set out to try to tease out. This idea that metabolic rate is a determinant of longevity, does it relate to you in this notion that animals only have a certain number of heartbeats, you know, per life? And once you've expended those allotted heartbeats, you're going to die. And also, I would raise the question of the hummingbird, which has an extremely high metabolic rate, but is apparently relatively long-lived. Is that correct? Yes, yes. I mean, you're exactly right. The sort of folk version of the rate of living theory is the constant heartbeat theory. I mean, there's a certain logic to it. And I think these many years later, we have to say that metabolism, metabolic rate, has a role to play in aging. It's just that it's not running the entire show because you're right. Something like a hummingbird, which heart beats 
20 times per second undergoes three or four or five times as many heartbeats in a lifetime as we do. And we're pretty long lived for a mammal. We have a lot of heartbeats for a mammal. This is one of the reasons that I think one of the more interesting groups of animals that we could study to learn something about how we could age more successfully is birds. That gets us into a lot of interesting territory. You know, my understanding is one of your great discoveries was this difference in longevity of possums that lived in the mainland of Georgia as opposed to an island off the coast, and that the animals living on the island were longer lived. I believe you attributed that to selective pressures associated with predation. Is that correct? That's correct. So there was an alternative to this rate of living theory, which was an evolutionary scenario that really was developed to basically try to understand the evolutionary logic of why animals age at all. If you think about it, evolution has this wonderful capacity to take a single cell fertilized egg and have it develop into a healthy adult of some kind of species it would seem to be just much easier to simply maintain that healthy adult once you have it. But yet, it's almost ubiquitous that aging occurs, that that healthy adult gradually loses its health. So one of the evolutionary ideas to understand that was that evolution is all about reproduction. And what evolution will favor is whatever physiology maximizes reproductive rate. Now, one of the things about possums that's important to note is that about 80% of them are ultimately killed by predators. They don't have much in the way of anti-predator defense. So I knew from studying ecology that one of the characteristics of islands was that they're pop-ridden predators. And so I thought if I could find a population that has been evolving in a habitat lacking predators for long enough, this theory would suggest that they should have developed slower aging. The idea being that if you're unlikely to be killed by something unrelated to aging, that it suddenly becomes evolutionarily favorable to continue to reproduce and to produce an immune system that lasts and a heart that lasts and eyes that last. And so I spent several years sort of trucking around the southeastern U.S., which is a possum heaven, looking at a variety of islands until I found one that had opossums, which is important, but it also had no bridge. It only had a boat traffic to the island. It also had recently had an ecological survey to show that there were no mammalian predators on the island. And indeed, The first day I arrived on the island, the first opossum I encountered. Now, by this time, I'd been studying opossums in South America for years, so I knew a lot about how they behaved. Usually in the daytime, you never find them. They're sleeping in a hole in the ground or in the nest in a tree. I almost drove over one because it was sleeping in the middle of a road in the middle of the day. And I simply walk up to it. I picked it up by the tail. So it's clear that the lack of predators had really had an impact on those opossums because they were just like the animals of the Galapagos. They were completely unafraid of humans. Are you sure it just wasn't playing possum? (laughs) Yes. Well, maybe it has. You know, one of the things, if you've handled a lot of possums, is that 
they don't play possum that often. They're more likely to try to eat your arm off than they are to play possum. Fortunately, they're very slow. So it's quite easy to avoid them having them eat your arm off. This avenue of thought brings up so many things. And I think that it's been observed that birds of flight live longer than terrestrial birds. And that presumably is due to predation factors. Is that right? Well, it may be predation or it may be more complicated than that. I mean, one of the things that flight does is it gives you an avenue to move long distances very quickly. Certainly, flight would allow you to be relatively immune from ground-based predators, but it also would allow you to fly 50 or 100 miles if the weather deteriorated, let's say, or if there were a food shortage in a certain area. So it really has the advantages of turning your environment into a much more hospitable place, because if you don't like it here, you can easily go someplace else. Continuing with the idea of flight, bats have an unusual long lifespan relative to their most related species, right? Yeah. Bats are related to, is it dogs or are they more like rodents? For the longest time, they thought that their closest relatives were shrews. But the most recent research, believe it or not, has changed all that. The first couple of bat genomes that were sequenced when they did the molecular biology of relatedness, they found that their closest relatives seemed to be a horse. So the very early bat fossils are not well preserved. So we really have a kind of a fossil gap. But what kind of creatures bats originally arose from? We have no idea except they couldn't possibly have been anywhere close to as long-lived as recent bats are. And this is one of the most powerful things to come out, I think, of this evolutionary perspective, is is that these animals that fly, whether they're birds or bats, and they've been separated by 350 million years of evolution, they're both exceptionally long-lived for their body size, but their relatives aren't. They're non-flying or poorly flying relatives are not. So what are current estimates on bat longevity? Well, the longest lived wild bat, and I want to point out that it's important to consider wild bat, is reported to be 41 years. And that's in an animal that's about a fifth the size of a mouse. So if you imagine that here's an animal that for over four decades has brave storms and predators and food shortages and temperature extremes, and yet can still be agile enough to fly up to 100 miles a night, pluck insects out of the air on the wing, and still hear its own echoes to find those insects. You know, high frequency hearing is one of the first things we lose. But bats have to maintain that year after year after year because getting their food depends on it because they find their animals in the dark by screaming into the dark and listening for the echoes. So the fact that a bat can live over 40 years in the wild strikes me as much more impressive than if it lived 60 years in a cage somewhere. The natural history part is fascinating. One of the aspects of modern geroscience, it's become extremely medicalized and fraught with molecular biology, etc. But you seem to be someone who really believes that understanding natural history of 
animals in the wild is going to give us key clues about how to potentially translate those observations into medical interventions. Yes. Could you comment on just the degree to which you think these natural history observations can accelerate more molecular or pharmacologic insights into human health? I think we're doing the medicalized part of aging research all backwards, to tell you the truth. And I say this for a variety of reasons. First of all, all of our model species that we use are demonstrably unsuccessful at combating the fundamental aging processes. That's actually why we study them, because they're very short-lived. They fall apart very quickly, and that has a lot of experimental advantages that I understand. However, nature is the best guide for me. You know, nature's had billions of years to experiment on billions of species. Nature has discovered some tricks that some animals use to combat fundamental aging processes better than we do. And I think that a key for us developing interventions that improve human aging. And remember, we already age many, many, many times more successfully than any of the standard laboratory models like mice or flies. Now, I think we're really going to have to turn our molecular armamentarium on these species that do things better than we do. It reminds me of some of your seminal work on wild captured mice, the Idaho mice and related species. It turns out that the laboratory mice, and this is work that you did with Rich Miller, seem to have been bred to have early sexual maturation and large brood sizes. And these genetic features were actually limiting their longevity. And, you know, obviously that was done for practical reasons, which led to the creation of the four-way cross, which we use at BioAge as an aging model. Do you think that a lot of what we've learned about interventions in these highly inbred laboratory strains are, are suspect? I do. I think we're learning enough about the fundamental aging processes and the molecular biology of aging that I think what these laboratory animals are doing for us is it's telling us, they're showing us where to look. You know, we want to look at the mTOR network. We want to look at insulin. So they've been very, very revealing, I think, about that. However, if we want to learn how to manipulate those things better than humans already do, then I think we're going to have to turn to some of the animals that are more successful. One of my favorite quotes is that evolution is smarter than you are. And I think that's true because it's just had so long to experiment. And so I think evolution will have come up with solutions to, let's say, how to maintain muscles better, maintain vision longer, maintain nerves better in some species than we currently already do in humans. I mean, I think we can see this. If we look at the biology of cancer, something like one in 10 mouse treatments that successfully treat cancer works in humans. In Alzheimer's disease, it's zero out of hundreds of successful treatments in mice. I don't think they're useless. I think they're showing us some ways to look and maybe we will occasionally come up with something that has human relevance. I just think we're going to come up with a lot of dead ends and it's going to be hard to 
distinguish what's the dead end from the real deal until we actually try those things out in humans. Whereas I think if we look at some of the animals that do things better already than we do, and I think the naked mole rat's a pretty good example of this because they seem to prevent cancer better than we do. I think that's really where we're going to find the major breakthroughs. I'd like to shift the conversation a little bit to sort of more of a research policy side. You have a prominent role at AFAR. You, you know, are very familiar with the National Institutes of Aging. You're the director of a Nathan Schock Center. How do you view the research enterprise? Well, first, as federally funded through things like shock centers and the NIA, you know, how effective are they? What role do they play in trying to raise consciousness about longevity and geroscience? And what are they doing well and what could they be doing better? I think what the Nationalists of Aging does well is it recognizes and publicizes major problems and gives out an increasing amount. I mean, their budget has tripled in the last few years, mainly because of the interest in Alzheimer's disease. But one of the reasons we have focused on Alzheimer's disease is because of work that the National Institute of Aging supports. What I think they don't do well, and this isn't the fault of the agency, it's really the fault of the scientific community, is that I think they don't fund high-risk research very well. A high-risk, high-gain research is something that it looks like the private sector is really moving into in a big way now. But one of the things I noticed, because over the last several decades when I've been working with the NIA, we've had several times when funding has gotten very, very, very tight. And when that happens, the people that review the grants, the scientists, I mean, we really have ourselves to blame for this, who review the grants, get even more conservative and they nitpick grants to the extent that sometimes it can be infuriating to sit on a grant review panel and hear people nitpick a brilliant piece of research because of something that the researcher forgot to put in. They forgot to put in the pH of some reagent or something like that. But again, I think it's not the NIA's fault. They do what the reviewers tell them to. I think scientists are increasingly conservative because they want to be able to do something that they know works. You know, most people I know have at least half of their next grant proposal already done, half the research done before they submit the proposal. That to me is a good recipe for very incremental advances, but not a recipe for major breakthroughs. Having been both an applicant and a study section member, (laughs) I couldn't agree more with your uh, analysis of this kind of nitpicking in times of want. But that's a great segue into the private sector because there's a plethora of small companies, startups, and even you know, kind of mid-sized companies that are specifically addressing aging. And we've interviewed a number of the new CEOs and whatnot. What's your general thinking or you know reaction to this? growth in for-profit aging companies? I think it's great, to tell you the truth. I think it's going to be a huge stimulus to the field. I think there's going to be a lot of crazy ideas that people pursue, but I think there's also going to, some of those crazy ideas are going to turn out to not be so crazy. And I think the fact that a lot of the 
investors that are pouring money in are biologically naive is not such a bad thing. It means they're willing to support things that nobody else would support. You know, one of my favorite Nobel Prize winners, uh, Mario Capecchi, loves to tell the story about when he submitted a grant and one of his, the specific aims of his grant that the reviewers really hated was the aim for which he won the Nobel Prize. And I think that getting these adventurous swashbuckling entrepreneurs into the field is ultimately going to lead to some very, very exciting stuff. We're just going to have to wade through a lot of craziness that comes out of it. Somebody has crazy idea. Well, maybe it fails. Maybe 10 of those fail, but one of them turns out to have something to it. By the way, Capecchi did have one crazy idea that he really wanted to take some bat genes, put them into mice. I don't think he ever got any funding to do that, but maybe somebody will pay attention to that now. When you think about all the mechanisms that have been invoked with regards to age-related decline, the so-called hallmarks of aging, you know, mitochondrial energy metabolism, genome maintenance, proteostasis, etc. Do you think that there is one in particular that is most important that we should really go after and focus on? Or is it more of a kind of a gestalt where everything's going wrong and, you know, you have to fix everything or you have to go upstream of everything like with Tor or insulin? What do you think are the most compelling intervention points pharmacologically? Ultimately, it all starts with mitochondria. I think of this as a symphony, right? And all of these things need to play together, but there's got to be something that sets the tone and sets the tempo. And I think mitochondrial function has to provide the energy for all of these other things, for DNA repair and proteostasis. And so I think that lies at the basis, but that doesn't mean that that's necessarily the best place to intervene, probably is a good place to intervene. And I think there's a lot of exciting stuff going on with mitochondria. But these large, these transcription factors that govern large networks, you know, one of the things that people always used to say was, well, aging is so complicated, it couldn't be modulated by just a handful of genes. But then dietary restriction, a very simple intervention turned out to have enormous impacts on aging suggested, well, maybe there's greater simplicity. And I think the simplicity is in things like mTOR, these transcription factors that turn on and turn off suites of things synchronously. So I think what we really need to do is learn how to keep those things well-tuned throughout life. And we're learning this already with some of the mTOR inhibitors. I think there's going to be multiple ways. In fact, if I had to bet on the anti-aging intervention that people would be using to live healthier 30 years from now, 50 years from now, it will be a combination of pills that address different aspects of the molecular aging network. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and ask you about this bet that you made with uh, Jay Olshansky. It's sort of part of the folklore of uh, inside geroscience. Can you describe that, what its origins were and where it stands now? So I was at a, con a small conference at UCLA in, I think, 2000 or 2001. And there was a journalist there from the New York Times who asked the group, when will we have the first 150-year-old person? And we all looked at one another and nobody wanted to say anything. And I have this 
terrible habit of blurting things out when nobody wants to say anything. So I said, I think this person is alive already, the first 150-year-old. She wrote that down and later published it, and it was picked up, and it came out in a short piece in Scientific American about later, and Jail Sansky read that. And I knew him from the aging field already, so he called me up and he said, you don't really believe that, right? I said, no, I do believe that, Jay. Why? He said, well, I have a suggestion. Why don't we have a wager? Because I think you're crazy. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, let's, so 150 years from now, that's uh, 2150, let's make a bet. And if by 2150, there is a person alive, it only has to be one person was alive in the year 2000 and is still cognitively intact enough to carry on a conversation, then you will win the bet. And if not, then I will win the bet. And for symmetry, let's each put $150 into an investment account, wait 150 years, and we'll designate a group of scientists who will adjudicate whether there's a real 150-year-old. Because of course, there already are many reports of 150-year-olds across the world that have turned out to be bogus. And we'll leave that for 150 years. And we calculated roughly at the historical rate of growth at the stock market that in 2150, that would be worth about $500 million. About seven years ago, journalists constantly rediscover this and they contact Jay and I to see if we still feel that we're correct. A journalist convinced us to double the bet. So we doubled the bet, which now makes it worth a even $1 billion. And actually, Jay has invested the money. He's been the banker. He's invested the money so well that it's doing better than the historical rate of growth in the stock market. So in the year 2150, in the best case scenario, I will inherit all the money. In the more likely scenario, my descendants will inherit the money, or as Jay thinks, you know, his great, 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 great grandchildren <laughs> will inherit the money. Now, I have to say, at the time we met, made this, the well, a woman had just died a few years earlier at the age of 122. And so I thought, aha, we're well on our way. And 150 years, by the way, is about 20% more than 122. We already knew lots of ways to make mice live 20% longer. So I thought, you know, you sucker, I'm going to get you here quickly. But since then, nobody has approached that age again. So Jay is feeling uh, more and more smug the longer it goes. But one of the things that's happened, Bob, over the last few years, and I think this is really important, nobody, I think, suspected this, is that the treatments we develop, the interventions that affect aging, seem to be pretty effective even when they're started later in life than we thought. So I'm still quite optimistic that I'm going to be the winner, or my kids maybe will be the winners. You're optimistic that you'll be there to collect the money. No, I'm not optimistic about that. That, I think, is a tremendous long shot. The fact that only one person, remember, we're not talking about 150-year life expectancy. Only one person has to live that long. So I'm thinking there's a young girl in Japan or a young woman in Japan somewhere now who's aging well to this date. And 20 years from now, there's going to be the pills that she can take and She's going to be the key to my billion-dollar payoff. Well, as they say, a billion here, a billion there. <laughs> Soon enough, you're talking about a lot of money. That's right. But maybe I could get you to opine about 
just the prospects of human longevity in the next century. Do you expect to see after, you know, in the second half of this century, to see a large number of people that are living, you know, past 120 or 150 or even 200 because of interventions? No, I don't. I think if we look to what we've been able to do with the animals, the shorter life the animal, the bigger impact we've been able to make on their longevity. Right now, we have a number of ways to make mice live about 20% longer, stay healthy too, about 20% longer. I think we're likely to achieve that with people at the outside. So I'm thinking a hundred year life expectancy with the occasional person living into their 130s, 140s, 150s might be possible. I don't think we're going to do better than that because we have never been able to do better than that, even with simple animals. I always like to close these discussions with a kind of a, a blue sky approach. Let's just say that, you know, you had your billion dollars or someone gave you a billion dollars and you could create the uh, Osted Institute for Life Extension. What would be the scientific charter of such an endeavor? or a company for that matter. What would you say, we need to focus on this right now? I would say we need a Manhattan Project to understand how birds live so long. And I would focus on one or two species and probably a species I would do is the most common bird in the world is this little bird called a house sparrow. One would have a little black bib on their front. You know, a mouse... A wild mouse lives maybe a year. They live a few months normally in the wild, and the Methuselahs of wild mice live a, a little more than a year. House sparrows in the wild live up to 20 years. So we're talking about something that does things way, way better than most mammals. I would turn all of our new molecular tools towards understanding how that house sparrow does it and trying to figure out how we can mimic that pharmacologically. How's that for a specific answer? <laughs> no, no, it's, it's a very specific answer, and it's very compelling. Yeah, yeah, I've been thinking about this. I mean, when you think about how model systems have informed big biological questions, like who would have thought that studying Drosophila, the fruit fly, would inform us in such a powerful way about so many things, including human development. And so I guess the question is the right model for the right question. Exactly. And you're suggesting that, you know, this sparrow could be, you know, the sort of the, what Drosophila was to, to development. It's a really interesting thought. Okay. In any case, I think we're close to the end of the hour. Thank you, Steve, for being so generous with your time and your thoughts. Well, thank you, Bob. It was a lot of fun talking with you. You always ask unusual questions, and I hope <laughs> you're, you're happy with the unusual answers that I typically give. No, uh, that's precisely why um, we wanted you. So with that said, many thanks to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com on Twitter at BioAge Podcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, 
Pyrage Labs on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time. 